I confess that I covet your skull, ladies and gentlemen. It's Sherlock Holmes week here on We Read the Book. I'm Adam Heap. I'm Lois Mitchell. And we're joined today by first-time guest, Nell Mort. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. That's an inter- I love that quote. Uh, that was the first thing that sprung out to me when uh, I was reading uh, the How Did the Baskervilles. He just says, I confess that I covet your skull. That's a sentence that someone said. <laughs> I think it's because they're all into phrenology and stuff like that. Yeah. So our question of the week this week, uh, Sherlock Holmes is well known for explaining through logic things that seem supernatural. Uh, what supernatural phenomenon would you explain through unusual logic? Uh, now we'll start with you. Yeah, I'm going to go with Bigfoot on this one. Mm-hmm. It's one that I think, you know, there's so many documentaries and so many people who have devoted, you know, years to, to search for Bigfoot and there's no evidence I find that really hard to believe that there is a paranormal explanation. I think it's mostly a case of misidentification. So just big hairy people who lost yeah. in the forest? Yeah, possibly. Possibly. I think, you know, strange monkeys. I don't know much about animals, I'm not going to lie. But I, I just find Bigfoot too far-fetched. And I think there's enough known animals that could really explain it. I think a lot of like these things are like confirmation bias. Like supernatural yeah. things, like, you know, people just want to see what they want to see. Like, so for me, my supernatural thing I'm going to explain through logic is, like, literally just two words, right? UFOs, frisbees. <laughs> All UFOs are frisbees. Because people just want to see UFOs. They're like, oh, man, if I don't know there are aliens out there, then I'll be satisfied and whatever. And it's like, so I reckon all frisbees. Area 51 is just a giant frisbee factory. And you know what? I find that interesting because you see all those photos and, no, there's video proof, video proof, but Photoshop is so accessible to everyone now. It's so easy to manufacture. Like maybe 30 years ago, you know, before, like the like before computers and things like that were around to yeah. digitally manipulate images, those things were so much harder. And so I guess anything kind of older than that, you can verify really, like, or not verify, but you know, like you, you were like, oh man, maybe this is real. These days, like there's nothing you cannot do through, through using a mouse on a computer. Have I told you my story about the time that I got really freaked out by something that was a UFO in the actual sense of an unidentified flying object? So when I was in Sydney doing my internship, I had to get the train and I was often quite late because I was working in a theatre. So I was walking home from a train station and quite high above me, there were like these blinking lights and it was like nothing I'd ever seen before and it was moving really erratically. And when I started walking, it started following me. And so I was like, what the hell is this? And like, I mean... Obviously, like in the moment when you have something like that above you, you're like, what is this? And you start to think like, is it a UFO? Like, is it like, and then I realized that uh, it was a drone. It was some kids playing with a drone because I heard them laughing. They were up on a balcony in a, because they could see, probably see that I was freaked out. They're up on a balcony in an apartment building and they were flying a drone and they were following me. Oh, wow. So but, rude. like, honestly, I was, like, for probably a, a couple of minutes, I was honestly really freaked because I couldn't see the outline of the drone because it was so dark. All I could see was these blinking lights on it. <laughs> and it was, yeah, like, no shape that I'd ever seen before. And it was too small to be a, like, you know, aircraft. And it was too low to be an aircraft. And so, yeah, it was really an unidentified object. And I was, yeah, it was really freaky. Between the advent of Photoshop and drones, we will never know if UFOs in yeah. photos are real again, ever. 
Do you have a supernatural phenomenon explained by logic? I don't know whether explained by logic, but I think I've talked before about my favourite thing that I sometimes look up is, um, uh, like, of supernatural things is the Loch Ness Monster. I love reading about, like, how stuff was staged and that kind of thing, but I also love looking at the, the photos and videos and things and thinking, what well, what if it was, was actually, like, a plesiosaur or... I think that is the answer that it's it's like a dinosaur that didn't die for some reason. That's like kind of halfway between a logical answer and a supernatural answer. Yeah. Uh, underwater is a great mystery though. Like yeah. I love underwater. I think because it freaks me out so much, like the idea of something being in the water, like if I was in the water with I think it. The thing is oh. though, even we're like, I mean, obviously we have sonar technology, even if some, like we had the perfect sonar that could... You could, you could plop it in the middle of Loch Ness, scan the whole thing and be like, right, there's nothing there. You would not deter people from believing that at all. Well, I think they have done that. Oh, yeah, yeah. But that's the thing. Like, yeah. it's just it's, it's just better to have those things existing, you know? I, yeah, I really life. feel like people who are really down on, on this kind of thing, like, obviously, if it's detrimental, like, people, you know, spend thousands of dollars looking for these things and whatever, but why not have a little bit of magic in the world? Yep, Absolutely. So, uh, we're talking about Sherlock Holmes this week. Uh, now, we're reviewing the Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Hound of the Baskervilles, and the 2009 Guy Ritchie-directed film, just Sherlock Holmes. Uh, obviously, these are two really different uh, beasts, the, and the 2009 film is not directly based off of the story, The Hound of the Baskervilles. The main connection is that there is something big and that seems supernatural, which Sherlock Holmes manages to explain through logic, uh, which is one of the main premises of The Hound of the Baskervilles, in which the demonic hound that, that hunts this family and is a curse on them is actually not that at all. It's not some mysterious legend. It's just a chemically altered dog. And there's, there's more to it than that. But that's uh, that's the, the thread that kind of links these two things. Some of you might be asking, why are we not doing... Uh, the movie-length Sherlock TV show produced by the BBC. Unfortunately, because it's not a movie, that's not kind of uh, what we want to focus on. And also, we just love this film and want to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, it's, a, it's a really fun film to watch. Normally, we take a vote on which we prefer the movie or the book, but obviously because they're so different, uh, we're going to kind of alter our discussion a little this week, uh, and we'll follow the plot of the film and talk about what uh, elements from the book uh, overlap. Uh, so for those of you who've not seen the 2009 film, uh, in 1980, eccentric detective Sherlock Holmes... You mean 1890, not 1980. <laughs> 1980, yeah, it's a very modern take. 40 years ago, but yeah... <laughs> Uh, in 1890, eccentric detective Sherlock Holmes and his companion John Watson are hired by a secret society to foil a mysticist's plot to expand the British Empire by seemingly supernatural means. Mm. I hadn't watched this one for a while. No, me neither. Yeah, neither did I. I really, I really like this movie. I like the second one. The second one's better, I think, because this one spends a lot of time setting up the characters. I mean, I get it. You're setting up your version of the characters, but everybody knows who Sherlock Holmes and Watson are. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you don't really need to spend a third of the movie doing that. Like, it really takes a long... I'd forgotten how long it takes to get into the plot. And it's really enjoyable because, you know, you do get lots of cool... lots of really good banter between Jude Law and Robert Downey Jr. And they're clearly having so much fun. And it's just... It's, like, a really fun movie to watch. But, yeah, I did forget that it doesn't let that get out of the way. There's it's a longish film. It's two hours. Two hours, yeah. So... Really, I felt like that could have been cut down a lot. Introducing Mary and introducing Irene Adler, like, took so long. And uh, the second film, uh, I think it's called A Game of Shadows. Game of Shadows, yeah. It is actually based off of... It is more of a direct adaptation than <laughs> yeah. this one is. It's based off the final problem uh, and the Reichenbach fall. Um, this one kind of is in 
uh, it's an amalgam of uh, a bunch of different stories. The Sherlock Holmes, it's almost an adaptation of the mythos more than it yeah. is a particular story. There are like small lines dipped in there from different books and obviously characters like Irene Adler, uh, but it doesn't really focus in on any one plot so much because this plot is brand new for the movie. We'll probably spend a bit of time talking about the characters themselves and, and how Arthur Conan Doyle's versions of those characters are brought to life on screen by Guy Ritchie. And um, I guess we'll start with Robert Downey Jr. Uh, as Sherlock Holmes. What do you guys think? Um, I think it's interesting to choose a American actor to play Sherlock Holmes, a quintessentially British figure. I I think he does a pretty good job. He Robert Downey Jr.'s around. Um, his accent's fine. It doesn't really dip. Yeah, I I think I think he does a good job. I read up on the background for this because he'd he'd just done a film, Chaplin. Yeah. Uh, where he obviously. Became... That's a great movie. Yeah, I've not seen it personally, but I've been told that his that's where he practiced his accent, and uh, Guy Ritchie was really impressed with it. Uh, there's a lot of talk about like Guy Ritchie and RDJ. RDJ basically came and pitched himself to Guy Ritchie because he had originally not envisioned a, a Sherlock Holmes that old. He was after a younger one, kind of just in his prime, learning almost as a Batman Begins sort of thing, like someone starting out at the beginning of that Sherlock Holmes arc, and uh, RDJ kind of came. And gave his pitch as a bohemian artiste sort of Sherlock. He's kind of doing this off the back of his resurrection to acting in Iron Man. There's so many hints of that cockiness and brashness in there, and, and obviously he's this was like peak RDJ period around 2010. He definitely brings something like interesting to the character. There's something to get you hooked on it, uh, and and that's kind of what they were after. Like as a film adaptation that people really enjoyed, but that was still faithful to that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle mythos. I think with Robert Downey Jr. and this role and and Iron Man, people are really aware of his public downfall. Like I think the public has forgiven him and like that's the wrong word but you know what I mean it moved past it the public's moved past you know his addiction and, and all of that but that's always going to be a part of him and I think for these characters that are flawed I think that that's where life meets art and so it works so well because you're seeing Robert Downey Jr. and you you know his past and his past problems. You see I have mixed thoughts I'm I'm a big Robert Downey Jr. fan in general. I really like a lot of the work he's done. In this, I'm just not convinced. I feel as though his portrayal of Sherlock was really leaning on more of a humorous, almost comical style Sherlock, which I don't feel is that accurate to the books. Our, you know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Sherlock was very strategic and logical and he was quirky, but I feel like Robert Downey Jr. made it almost like a family-friendly type Sherlock, which isn't really true to how he's been written. I also feel like he could have used that personal struggle with addiction to bring more depth to the Sherlock of the film. So I feel like it lacked that depth a little bit, but it was lighthearted and enjoyable to watch. So I think if you were watching him just as a detective, as a sleuth type character, yeah, I think he did a great job. If we're looking at him compared to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock, I think there's some characteristics that he had an opportunity to bring out that he possibly didn't, and other characteristics that were just manufactured that I didn't feel sat well with the story. But they did sit really well with Jude Law. I think that interaction between he and Jude Law as John Watson was really nicely played out in that they were such great colleagues and almost had this brotherhood, which was really nicely done as opposed to some of the other adaptations where he's sort of a bumbling sidekick that doesn't really have much to contribute to the 
development of the plot. Yeah, I want to come back to that when we talk about Jude Law as uh, John Watson, because uh, that's a big part of, of why he got the part at all was RDJ's involvement. But I, w- I want to come back to that. And I, de- I definitely agree with what you're saying. I think there's there's uh, there, look, Guy Ritchie in this is he's got an aim, doesn't he? He's he's got a style of how he wants to produce this film. Uh, of, the same as every film. Yeah, as, as <laughs> yeah. every Guy Ritchie film uh, that he does. <laughs> Uh, it's that very British, uh, ladsy joke sort yeah. of aspect. Well, he makes it a gangster film almost. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the 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 Wikipedia's description of the genre of this as a neo noir. Uh, history, uh, historical mystery, something, something like action adventure. I'm like, oh my gosh! Like, any time you use more than like two words in the genre of a film, you've used too many. Uh, but it is quintessential Guy Ritchie. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. is he's the perfect kind of actor for what Guy Ritchie's going for here. Uh, in I mean, in comparison to the Sherlock Holmes we see in Hound of the Baskervilles, very different. Uh, I mean, obviously there's similarities in the fact he's a very clever detective. Uh, he's a dick to people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, can be. Which is, but that's part of the Sherlock character, yeah, you know. Yeah. And and if anyone is good at being a dick, it's Robert Downey Jr. You know, he portrays that arrogance very, very well. Uh, as we've all seen in those Iron Man films. We can't really do this without mentioning uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, because he is now, he is the person that people know as Sherlock. I'm, I'm curious to see, because Lois, I know you really enjoy the films, and now, obviously, by the sounds of it, you have, have a preference for a more traditional Sherlock. Like, am I assuming correctly that you, uh, I'm assuming now that you've watched a fair bit of modern Sherlock? Sure uh, BBC wise, do you both prefer like the versions that that you're more interested in, like in terms of Lois? Like, the, are you more interested in Robert Downey Jr. and Nell in Benedict Cumberbatch? I just think with with what Nell was saying, it's partly that you have to when you go into this movie, you kind of have to go just go. This is a Guy Ritchie film, so it's just going to be a Guy Ritchie film. It's not going to. Yeah, it's, it's going to diverge it's from traditional have, Sherlock. Yeah, it's going to have all the characteristics of a Guy Ritchie film with this Sherlock sort of umbrella put over it. So I agree with you, like, Robert Downey Jr. is doing things more humorously, kind of with a wink, but I feel like that's the film. And so that's why he's right for this Sherlock. But yeah, I agree with you, like, it's not like the Sherlock in the books. But I think that's why I find the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock, like, I like the mysteries in that show. I think that show relies on the fact that you really don't like Sherlock as a person. I feel like the, one of these Sherlocks is designed to be, to, for you to think I could be his friend, and the other one is definitely not. Yeah, I just, I would get fed up with the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock just kind of niggles at me that, uh, and in places that the show also tries to say, oh, you know, it's not his fault he's like this. Also, another thing that I don't like in the BBC Sherlock is there is a lot of queer baiting. So if you're not aware of queer baiting, uh, that's when they suggest there could be a romantic or sexual relationship between two people of the same gender, but they never actually... Pull the trigger. Yeah, they never actually go there, and it's it's just to sort of tantalise, and it's, it's really just a not cool thing to do. It's just not fair on sort of your queer audience members, and it, look, look how progressive we are without actually doing anything progressive. That's very Stephen Moffat thing yeah. to do, though. That's also prevalent in Doctor Who. Like... So that really, really bothers me when I'm watching it. It gets it gets worse and worse throughout the seasons. Um, given that the show that Stephen Moffat writes is a modern show, if he's going to do that, he should just do it and not pretend like, oh, I'm just going to put little hints here and there. So, yeah, I have a few issues with, with the BBC Sherlock. 
See, I'm a big fan of the BBC Sherlock. I find the storycraft is really well done. I feel like I'm, you know, almost stressed out watching it because I feel like there's always something so sinister just around the corner. In terms of what you're saying about the likability, I really agree with you. I find that Benedict's not likable as Sherlock. And I find it really interesting that you mention people making apologies for him because I don't think we should be making apologies for that behaviour. And I think our written Sherlock doesn't make those apologies and doesn't need an audience to make those apologies. So it is interesting that societally we've, you know, adopted him and, and excused these maladaptive behaviours. If we're looking at our written Sherlock, you know, he was an addict, he was a fighter, he he was never apologetic about that. And I think that's kind of part and parcel with him. I think we should be able to be comfortable with disliking this Sherlock, who yeah. is a real jerk. It can be deceptive, both book and TV show, less so in the movie, because in the BBC version and in the original version, at least in Hand of the Baskervilles, I would argue that the protagonist isn't Sherlock. It's Watson. Yeah, it's Watson, who, that's yeah. Who's, that's who's... That was I mean, really Watson's surprising. more likeable in the TV show, yeah. and Watson, who you spend time with in the book. The movie, Robert Downey Jr. is the selling point, so obviously that's the person they focus on. And it's why the movie, again, is so different to, to the books. That's that's the likeable character. Watson is the, the one with far less flaws. Sherlock is, is definitely that flawed character who I think, and, and you're deceived into this by the fact that the name of the book and the film and the TV show is Sherlock. Yeah, you're right. Particularly in the book, you get that sort of feeling like Sherlock swept in at the end to sort of take credit for things, which just drives me up the wall when Watson's done all this groundwork and, and really worked so hard. Then Sherlock comes in with really important key pieces of information and subsequently gets all of that credit and glory as a result. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, a show that I think bridges the gap between these two things, the American series with Lucy Liu as Watson. It's Elementary? Also, yeah, Elementary, yes. yeah. Because in that you have a Sherlock who's a recluse and a recovering addict. That's why how Watson gets involved. She's his sort of healthcare provider, mental healthcare provider, so she lives with him. You have Watson as a woman and a woman of colour, so that's amazing. Yeah, just a, just a more unapologetically dislikable um, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, that elementary series Sherlock certainly doesn't expect to be liked and really owns that selfishness, which I agree with you. Yeah. Let's move on because uh, there's so many adaptations of Sherlock. We could keep going. <laughs> yeah, we, we need to uh, focus in. So let's talk about uh, Jude Law as John Watson. I So Law basically got involved. Uh, he knew about the project happening under Richie and his, his interest really stepped up once uh, Robert Downey Jr. was secured as Holmes. He felt a good foil for Robert Downey Jr.'s character would be someone, a gambler and a bit of a womanizer, the soldier doctor aspect, um, all that sort of thing. And uh, he he was a big Sherlock Holmes fan before getting involved with this to start with. Like he played uh, a part in an, an other Sherlock Holmes pieces. But so it was really Robert Downey Jr. that spurred Jude Law on. And, and now you've already mentioned this, that I think that they're, they're fantastic together. Like they really just have a great on-screen chemistry, like right from the word go. You can tell they're actually friends because it's so easy between them. The moment I think it really sells it for you it's kind of early on in the film because it is a two-hour film. It's probably about half an hour, maybe 40 minutes in, in that they're taking a carriage ride together to go see uh, Lord Blackwood's oh, yeah. uh, his execution. And they're just having a brief fight. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. as Holmes is trying to grab his waistcoat off of uh, Watson. He says that it belonged to him and that they agree that it doesn't fit 
Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so um, uh, Watson takes it off him and purely out of spite throws it out of the carriage just so Downey Jr. can't have it. And uh, there's a this really wry smile that appears on the corner of his face. And that's the moment for me where I was like, oh, I love these two. They're, uh, they're just fantastic together. And, th- and again, that's a big selling point for the movie. You feel like you're along for the ride having fun the whole time. Yeah, I read somewhere that uh, Guy Ritchie had actually envisioned someone like Russell, Russell Crowe for that part. What which a bizarre choice. Me. Yeah, because I feel like Jude Law does such a spectacular job in this. Like, you know, like we've mentioned with that banter and just the way he portrays John Watson as being so flawed, but quietly flawed. I think he did a great job. And I couldn't imagine Russell Crowe being able to pull that off so seamlessly. I really feel like it's very difficult for a non-British actor to pull off being British enough. I don't, and I don't know why, because it doesn't, the other way, British actors pull off being American all the time. And so, yeah, I think that's what Jude Law brings to this role, is like slightly uptight Britishness that is just so hard to quantify. And then, but if you're British, you just know innately. It's interesting that Robert Downey Jr. works in the film because he's not British. So I wonder if they got someone more like a Jude Law type to do Sherlock Holmes, what the movie would have been like. Yeah, he, he definitely pulls off being British. I yeah. Agree. And if uh, you almost get that feel if anyone could have done it, it could have been, it would have been him. Yeah. Yeah, like, I, I feel like he, the best thing about him is that he kind of grounds the two of them, because, I mean, Robert Downey Jr. has that tendency, he plays a lot bigger than himself, uh, that's naturally what he does, and, and that's Sherlock Holmes' character who goes to such far extents, and, and Watson really grounds him really well, and Jude Law does a fantastic job of portraying that, I feel. Uh, he just kind of has that really realistic, natural air to him. Even though he gets involved in all these fights and, and escapades, he's a very human, relatable character who's just, like, his aim the whole time is just to solve the thing so he can get back to Mary. And uh, and his relationship with her is very genuine, and, and he, he is. He's the perfect foil for a Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I appreciate as well that they go back to the book version of this in, in that, and you know, again, you mentioned this earlier, in that he's not an idiot. Like, Watson's very clever. He's involved in solving the mysteries. Again, we kind of have to talk about Martin Freeman uh, as Watson, because he's the other well-known character for playing that now. But I like that, that both of them are reasonably intelligent. I feel like Jude Law is actually portrayed as, as almost more of an equal than, than Martin Freeman is. I'm not sure whether that's because Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock spends so much time denigrating Freeman in the show for you know not quite being on on the point. Um, I think the difference is that Martin Freeman's character allows Sherlock to do that to him, whereas Jude Law's Watson doesn't. He he might in the moment let him get away with it, but then he'll get his own back later. Whereas we don't really see Martin Freeman do that. He'll just let Sherlock walk all over him. All right, we'll move along to the next major character who features in this, which is Rachel McAdams as Irene Adler. Now, obviously, uh, the uh, Irene Adler is taken from A Scandal in Bohemia, which is a one-off uh, story. It's implied in the film that uh, Irene Adler has kind of met Sherlock before, and uh, they met, they do refer to that particular story in that uh, she outwitted him twice. And then the film goes on to kind of suggest that they've had a continuing on and off relationship here and there, uh, which never happened in the source material that Irene Adler only ever featured in that story and was never never met Sherlock again. But Rachel McAdams, I, I, I know, I, I can't really tell whether I super enjoy her in this or not. Like, she fits the tone of the film, I think, fine, but I'm just never really interested in her. She's, I feel like sometimes she's just kind of there so that there is a female character for 
Sherlock to be interested in. I don't know what you guys, if you guys agree with that or not. Yeah, I do agree with that. I think that if we look at our book, Irene Adler, she she was really brilliant. And like you said, she doesn't meet up with Sherlock afterwards. There isn't this ongoing relationship between the two of them. Putting her in the film in the way they did really downplayed how brilliant she is as a character. The only real side of that we get in the movie is that scene where, you know, she's walking, you know, she gets mugged or those men try to mug her and she holds her own against three men spectacularly. But that's really the only time when you're impressed with her. Other than that, I feel like she's just a tool used by the professor, you know, just there to, to drive subplots that aren't really essential to the film. I think Rachel does a really great job of that role, but I don't think it was written well. Mm. It's that typical Hollywood thing of we need a love interest for the man, but it doesn't matter if she's her own character. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And let's not give her anything too great. You yeah. know, like we'll give her one scene where she's really good and then she'll just be in the background. So she's a strong female. Oh, yes. Yeah. For this one scene. For this one scene. <laughs> the, the but the rest of the time she's an idiot and just falls into people's traps. Yeah. The, but um, she's very pretty. The yeah. trouble is with that for me is that the whole point of the book is not necessarily even that she's strong, which I don't have a problem with them having that in here, but that she's smart. She's smarter than Sherlock twice. Mm, like, yeah. that's a big deal. And that's totally left out here. Like, she's not even betrayed really as, as smart as Watson is. Yeah. Oh, mm. I think the trope of using Irene as the love interest is really common um, as far as I understand it. I think they do the same thing in the BBC series that she she's come in and out of his life multiple times probably because she's one of the only female characters apart from Mary's. Yeah and I think they do it to humanise Sherlock a little bit more you know oh he's got a love interest he's had a social life and a romantic relationship but I just don't think it's necessary and I think it really downplays her potential as a strong character and just makes her the eye candy of the film. Yeah it is done to kind of fit that Guy Ritchie mould of a film you know like to be family friendly. I can't recall does she appear again in the sequel? Yes she does. She uh, she meets her end in the sequel from memory. No I'm pretty Am sure I... she's slated to be in the third one so. Are they doing oh, a really? third one? There's It's really Okay. I think maybe you think she's died. I don't think you're too far off base. Or doesn't she I get poisoned? She was poisoned. Yeah. yeah. But now I can't remember if that was the BBC one. I don't know. No, think I think it you're is. right. I think she does get poisoned. They're in the restaurant and he taps his glass and everyone just stands up and walks out. Yeah. Horrible uh, it says moment. apparently killing her. They're not sure whether she's died or not. So I'm assuming they've left it vague enough that they can bring her back or not if, yeah, she, if they cool. can contract negotiate with her for a third. <laughs> Uh, the only other kind of major character I want to talk about is not one who's based in the books, and that's Mark Strong as Lord Blackwood, as the main villain of the piece. I'm a huge Mark Strong fan. I love everything he's done. He kind of really sold me in, on his part in Stardust, uh, which is a fantastic uh, film. You want a British villain, you go, you kind of, he's one of the main people you go to. He's up there with kind of Tom Hiddleston and uh, other people of, of that sort of nature, and I, I think he does a pretty adequate job of being sinister and dark magic-y in this. Yeah, I think he was very sinister. And the way that he used his, I don't want to say lankiness, but he's almost portrayed as this sort of snake-like character. And the way he used that, I think, was really nicely done when you see him, you know, sitting in the chair while, while his father's in that bath and he just takes the ring, slides it on the finger, almost casually watching his father die. Yeah, he's got a huge credits list. Yeah, he's one of those actors, like, because he's in, in so many things... Like, oh, you, I know you. <laughs> I've seen you in this, this, and yeah. this, and that's just three out of a hundred. Like, I, I couldn't have named who he was, to be honest, but I, I knew that I knew him from lots of things. I'm just looking up, he's in Kingsman, that's probably the most recent ah, yes. thing yeah, that I would that. recommend him 
that I would not recommend him, but remember him from. So there's a couple of other actors there. We don't want to spend too much time on any of them, but you know, a few of the characters from the stories do feature. Lestrade uh, is in this. Uh, obviously, Mrs. Hudson features. Mary Morstan features. Uh, they're all kind of minor roles who don't really have any significant contribution to the plot. Lestrade is kind of in and out. I enjoy Lestrade in this version. So do I. Uh, one person whose involvement we have kind of mentioned here and there already is Guy Ritchie. I don't really know what much more there is to say about this. Like, we've kind of talked about the direction that this film takes. It is a traditional Guy Ritchie film under that, I think that's the best way to put it, under that Sherlock umbrella. All those tropes of his uh, well-known films are there, you know, like it's a ladsy film. There's a lot of broad comedy. It's very open and accessible sometimes, probably more so in, in this adaptation, or in this story than maybe in some of the, the more M, M15 rated yeah. uh, films that he's done prior. Yeah, like we were saying before, it's very quintessentially Guy Ritchie, but then I, I look at his filmography and actually, including ones that haven't even come out yet, he's he's got only got 15 credits. He doesn't have 75 films to his name. Um, it's very interesting. He knows um, what he likes, so he yeah. obviously tends to pick projects he thinks he can kind of bring his style to and that will benefit from that. Yeah. Like, out of the films on this list, I probably rec- recognise four, including the sh- five, including the Sherlock Holmes movies. The most recent one he did was um, The Man from Uncle, which I have to say is a very bad movie. <laughs> the movie looked really fun in the trailers, and it's it's so boring. This is such a boring movie. It has Henry Cavill in it, if you like looking at nice male bodies. Nice male bodies. <laughs> we'll move on from Guy Ritchie then, uh, and we'll talk about the score for a brief moment uh, before we move on to the plot. You don't really need to work too hard to guess who, who scored this film. It's Hans Zimmer. I was listening to it, and I'm like, I'm really enjoying this. I wonder who Hans Zimmer probably? Yep, yep, it was Hans as soon, Zimmer. As soon as you hear the, um, I think it's a klezmer, as soon as you hear that, because that's just quintessentially Hans Zimmer, and you're like, oh yeah, it fits the Hans tone. Zimmer. It like, yeah. it just matches with the scenery, uh, with the mood of the film. Like, it's a good choice of score. You know, like he, there's very little that Hans Zimmer gets involved, and then he does do an amazing job. Yeah, with. he's good at covering what the subject matter is, but I think the reason you can pick him is that he uses pretty much the same tricks, whereas your John Williams scores, he does everything. I think one of the the favourite things of Hans Zimmer that he does is that he creates just an iconic theme and though like because everyone knows the Pirates of the Caribbean theme you know that song it's called the track is titled He's a Pirate and everyone everyone knows that as soon as I kind of heard those first notes even though I hadn't seen this film in ages I'm like oh that's the Sherlock theme you know Uh, we'll move along to the plot then I guess Uh, so I mean obviously we're going to follow the film's plot we're going to kind of breeze through this and just talk about elements of Sherlock and that's elements <laughs> the of Sherlock that are kind of balanced through this. Thanks, Lois, throwing me off my sentence and jump. And um, with my hilarious jokes. Oh, it was amazing. I didn't even get it. What was it fun? Elementary oh. elements. No, oh, there you go. Oh, I'm just slow today. Oh, you are really slow. Thanks, Lois. But interestingly, Hand of the Basketball is that first time when Sherlock uses the. It's elementary. Oh, really? Oh, Grace, okay. Yeah. To know that. That's but cool. But that classic quote of elementary, my dear Watson, was never in any of the stories. That's was it that Hollywood... Wh- yeah, yeah, was it in like one of the first adaptations, I think? Yeah, I think yeah. it was. Okay, so a lot of this, uh, we've already said the plot is completely contrived. Uh, it's original. It's not it's adapted from any particular book. So we'll kind of breeze through and just talk about it. So one of the first things I want to talk about, it happens really early on. Uh, so the plot starts with uh, Holmes and Watson interrupting... <laughs> a ritual uh, by Lord Blackwood. He's in the middle of some satanic ritual trying to murder someone uh, or trying to get a girl to murder herself or something like that. 
and they interrupt him and one of the, the first thing that happens early on is one of the one of Blackwood's henchmen runs into Holmes you take this you get this moment inside his mind as he's planning the fight ahead of time I look, this is one of my favorite tropes from this film and it gets repeated a few times it's mostly early on doesn't tend to come back later on in the film but it sets up for you that Holmes thinks through everything and that he's about 10 steps ahead of, you know, an average opponent. So he, he plans his first move and knows what that will do to them, how it will make them react, and then what his next move is from there. And so basically what he does is he walks through the steps of the fight. Uh, you see kind of the visualization of it in slow motion all the way through to the conclusion of this very brief fist fight that only takes about three seconds worth of real time. And then it brings you back to that, starts the fight from scratch, takes three seconds, and then it's done. And you see that everything went exactly as he planned. And this is one of my favorite things about the film that they set up early on on a really like this element showing that he thinks things through to the letter like he knows exactly what's going to happen and i really like this i feel like in a way it's almost a homage to sir arthur conan doyle as a person because he was a doctor so he had a really great knowledge of anatomy and and treating injuries i feel like the inclusion of this really was a nice way to kind of nod to that that knowledge of if i do this this is going to be the consequence that you know prognosis that a full recovery is not going to be likely I feel like they really, really neatly wove that in. I particularly enjoy, it's just, it's done with good humour as well, you know. It's interesting that it, it, it only tends to happen, he gets these moments of clarity, but there are other fights where he just gets totally knocked around, like, you know, like he's barely even a part of it. So, I mean, obviously his plans don't come to fruition perfectly every time, but against really average opponents who he's just about as strong as, he can generally outskill. Also ones he's yeah. surprising. Mm. Um, they managed to foil Blackwood and he's sent off to jail. We're introduced to Mary. Uh, this is, they perform that same trope again with Mary, but it's less so him predicting the fight and more it's him taking a moment, looking a person over and analysing them and what, and you know, this is something Mary asks for and uh, is unfortunately given. Yeah. Also one of the first times where you see him being like a super jerk to someone because he doesn't have to point out that she's clearly got a tan line where a wet, where an engagement ring was and he goes as far to say that she's a a gold digger that she dumped the guy because the ring wasn't big enough and then she throws wine on him and tells him that her previous fiance died and he's just taking out on her his feelings that he's going to lose his friend um, yeah so they're they're planning on moving out obviously because watson and mary are engaged are they engaged because he buys the ring later or are I, they I engaged, think they're engaged in that he hasn't got a ring yeah they're intended but not engaged yeah so the plot thread throughout the film is that sherlock holmes doesn't want watson to leave the house with him because he enjoys their adventures yeah the thing in this moment is that you you learn that sherlock has no line he yeah. has nowhere to stop yeah so blackwood is uh, sentenced to death holmes and watson have to go off He's actually asked, Blackwood has asked for Holmes to be his, as his last request. So he warns Holmes that there will be three more deaths and that there's nothing that Holmes can do to stop him. Uh, he's hanged, uh, effects and purposes, looks like he's dead. We will later find out that he is not dead. This is kind of where you start getting that supernatural feel. And there's a couple of nods to another Sherlock Holmes story, The Sign of Four, in this sequence where you know it begins with that prison guard on the floor having these convulsions, which we later learn he's a corrupt prison guard being paid off, which is from that Sign of Four uh, stories. And also the introduction of Mary Morstan, which happened in the Sign of Four. Yeah, like dedicated season. Sherlock fans will get this and people who haven't read any of the source material will <laughs> still find it. Only true Sherlock fans <laughs> will understand yeah. this. And yeah. the true nineties kids. Like yeah. Luke Reardon being a eighteen nineties being a midget, which, you know, doesn't happen in Hand of the Baskervilles. But then in the sign of four there's a midget who's the um assistant to the main bad guy, villain in the story, which is more or less the same character, just plucked up, put in somewhere else and made someone hired. 
Yeah, it's nice that throughout this film they have scattered these bits and pieces from other stories. Uh, I mean, they didn't. They don't really need to. They don't really have any reason not to either. I mean, the it's whole, an easy source of characters that have already been well, written. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's pretty clear that a lot of Sherlock stories couldn't be adapted for film because they were short stories. They were literally not designed for you know. There's only the thing. There's only four novels. I'm right. Yeah. yeah? You have to kind of pick and choose bits, and, and it's nice that you have a wealth of material there to take from. Uh, at this point, we meet Irene Adler and are set up for Professor Sequel. Yeah. Um, Moriarty's really only in this, like, to kind of... Because he plays no partner other than than being like, ooh, I'm going to be here later. Yeah. Which is fine, you know, that's 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 something the BBC does. That's, that's the world of blockbuster films these days is they have to set up sequels. When she first starts talking, it's a little bit jarring because you kind of expect her to have a British accent. You're like, whoa. And they sort of immediately say, oh, I've just come back from New Jersey or something to sort of place her. Yeah. But, um, like, they address it, which is also good because some movies would just have her have an American accent and not address it, which would also be bad. <laughs> I like what they do here. So this scene where she comes up and talks to Sherlock and so basically they're, her and Moriarty want, I mean, they don't reveal it's Moriarty, obviously. We're talking about that quite openly. Um, but she's just in the employ of someone mysterious uh, <laughs> who we later find out to be Moriarty. Uh, but I like this moment, what they do in the film. I like the... It's, it's played very straight initially in that as soon as she leaves, she's, she basically says to Sherlock, I would need you to find uh, Mr. Reardon. And she leaves... And then Watson uh, comes up to the apartment and has a bit of a chat with him, and it's revealed like they then they go back and replay that moment. And what Sherlock's actually done is he's jumped out a window and followed her through a like a circus of people to and and faked himself uh, as a you know a, a street beggar, beggar yeah. to find out who she's in the employ of and it's nice that they come back and replay that in depth and you see these like what what initially appeared to be very very harmless as a moment is actually you know he's he's aware that something's going on you know uh so basically they go on from here we find out uh that blackwood isn't dead someone has seen him walking amongst the living yeah uh, his tombstone has been broken open even though that should be theoretically impossible from the, it's been broken from the inside um i mean obviously this will be explained later but this is kind of the really where they start playing up the something supernatural is happening here yeah they can't explain it straight away i like this moment where robert Downey jr is just sitting there like licking the the stones and they pull out the coffin and it's written not yeah. blackwood so clearly blackwood has faked his own death somehow and is or has risen from the dead and, and someone else has died in this place uh we, we'll find out later that reardon is basically the the scientist for for blackwood he's he's the one doing the actual chemical work that provides a lot of the logical explanations we'll find out later on yeah and so that's where the plot goes next is to the lab and so Holmes and Watson are discussing how is how are science and magic interrelated in this because we've already seen Blackwood performing like rituals and things like that and they go to the lab there there's a lot of experiments happening there's a lot happens in this scene you find out later on because there's a like any science lab there's a probably about 10 12 15 different experiments going on at a time and they set up the plot a lot in this one scene just through little details you see like Sherlock looking at a pot full of frogs and a, a burnt leaf the, this is basically the source of all the logic that comes through later on in the film and so once they've gotten through all of the uh, material they get to the end of the lab and two of Blackwood's cronies are there too they, they're there with fuel to burn it all and uh, I like that they're joined by the the giant I really like the giant French guy here he's a yeah. that's a really good source of comedy it shouldn't be a juxtaposition but it is that he comes in and you expect him to come out with like some kind of cockney accent and then he speaks in French and I, I like the line meat or potatoes 
Yeah, so they're deciding uh, which of because obviously only Holmes and Watson are there, and they have to fight the three of these guys. He's describing the the big French guy as the meat, and the smaller guys as the potatoes of which one they want to fight. And so Holmes ends up fighting the uh, Mister Frenchman, and Watson takes the other two on. I mean, they're both pretty capable fighters in their own right, but I really like the whole electricity thing, despite how obviously bad physic like physics that is when he he shoots him across the room with the early version of the taser. Yeah, well, it gets a bit steam. Punky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's the attitude they're going for, yeah. you know, because like, I'm sure at that point in time, later on in the film, they probably didn't have any sort of invention that could disperse cyanide gas through a complicated vent system. Yeah. The fight, like, ends up spewing into the, uh, the like, a shipyard as they manage to scare away the big guy with this electricity thing, and then uh, when they get to this, it's, it's just like a boat shed, and the French guy here gains the advantage. He's kind of, they've kind of left Watson behind, almost, and then once Holmes's taser runs out uh, he's kind of on the back foot like retreating through this shipyard and very obviously they're knocking down like the big guy with his uh, big axe is knocking down all the supports and the boat's tilting over and you're like oh yeah let's see what's going on here yeah and then you get that cool moment where Watson saves Holmes because Holmes has been knocked into one of the uh, like channels by the sort of I guess dock where the, the boat the boat is like has slipped down the dock and gone into the water but it's pulled an anchor off its mooring. Holmes kind of sits up and is like really bleary and this big huge metal thing is like bouncing down the dock and so Watson jumps in and jumps on top of him and pushes him down so that the the thing bounces over the top of them, whereas it probably would have decapitated Holmes Mm. otherwise. I thought the art really like that just that boat just sinking yeah. <laughs> into the, the harbour nearby. Yeah, causing that much damage. Well, and they do get sent to jail for it. Like, yeah. I, I like that they actually follow up on that. Like, they do legitimately get punished for it. You could have easily ignored that and be like, oh, how did they get off with doing that? Um, but they're sent to jail. Uh, Watson's bailed out by Mary and Holmes is left in there alone. And you think he's going to get beaten up, but then he's like all buddy-buddy with the people the in there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so he's, he's taken at this point to, like, the people who bail him out, uh, they blindfold him and take him to their secret headquarters. So this is, the we're introduced here to the Temple of the Four Orders, who are this, you know, secret society thing that's happening. They're all made up of members of parliament, because of course they are. Um, they're like, um... I'm sure that's what's going on in some other countries around the world right now. That must be what's happening. They're like masons. They're like, we've controlled the, or like the Illuminati, like we've controlled the course of events for... Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, of course you have old white dudes. Yeah. Yeah, that was very noticeable. (laughs) Um, They are entirely old white men and most of them happy to give the power to, like, anyone who's slightly younger than them and confident. Yeah. Uh, Rotherham, Standish and Coward are the three members we're introduced to. I love that name, like, Coward. I I thought I must have been mishearing and I was like, Cowan? But no, it's actually Coward. (laughs) Uh, so Rotherham is basically Blackwood's father and their... Which um, nobody knows, but Holmes picks up on immediately because of his earlobes. Is that right? Yeah, something. He's got colour of his irises as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, that they're recessive, so it's quite likely that if you have... If he has both and Cavendish, Cavendish has both, they're quite likely to be related. Yeah. And so basically they... What are they doing? They're asking Holmes to hunt him down, right, and to find out what's going on. Yeah. We, we aren't informed of this at this point, but Coward is later revealed to be a subordinate of Blackwood. Uh, so very shortly after this, Rotherham is killed by Blackwood. He's one of the three deaths that they that they mentioned earlier on. Uh, and he's doing this because he wants to basically be in control of the Temple of the Four Orders. Yeah. What a strange name for a society, by the way. Like it's it's weird. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't just like out and out say like we're the Illuminati. 
uh, Blackwood returns basically to take control of the temple. Uh, he's opposed by Standish, but Standish is then killed as well, seemingly by lighting him, like by shooting his gun and then bursts into flames. This is all like supernatural implied things that are happening yeah. with these people. Like Robin's killed by his water in his bath, boiling him to, to death. Uh, yeah. Again, that'll be explained later on. And so basically Blackwood is, uh, he takes control of this secret society with Coward as his second in command. As Watson and Holmes go to investigate, they find Irene Adler has been captured and is basically being used as bait. And they they manage to rescue her in the, this slaughterhouse uh, escape scene. Yeah, it's very James Bondy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, now like, you will die, Mr. Bond. Very slowly. You yeah. Know, instead of just... <laughs> Instead um, of just killing him, like, on a conveyor belt going towards knives and fire. Yeah, villain 101. Yeah, you're definitely going to die, but we'll make sure it's slow enough that you've got every opportunity to escape. Yeah. yeah especially yeah. for a brilliant detective who can instinctively, like, isolate the how to solve the problem. So they do save her. So there's this scene where they're running away. It's implied that Watson has died in a massive explosion. He, like, trips a wire while he's chasing after Blackwood, and uh, big Guy Ritchie explosions happen. It's implied that he's died, and then, like, two seconds later, the policeman's like, he's fine, but you should run away. Is, I found it very strange that they, like, always, always bothered him at all to imply that he was dead rather than just severely injured. Yeah, and it would have been just as easy to see him fall but then sit up again and yeah. continue. So Holmes is kind of told now that he's told to run away, so at this point Holmes uh, heads off to try and find... A a solution to the problem. There's a bit of a problem-solving scene. You you almost think that he's about to indulge in the supernatural, and then. So in this scene, he's high, right? When he's having like all these thoughts going through his head, and and he's kind of like sitting in the middle of the pentagram, and and then he gets visions of Irene trying to wake him up, and. Yeah, well, you never see it though, do you? I, yeah. I don't recall ever seeing anything explicit happening. Yeah, I feel like it's implied. Yeah, because then you have like him sort of groggily waking up as well, so I feel like he's kind of hung over. I mean, it would make sense. It doesn't. I I guess if you don't interpret it that way, the only other way you interpret it is that he's. Just just lost in this haze of trying to solve all these yeah. problems at mm. once and kind of the, the hundred thousand things racing through his brain and when he wakes up uh, Watson and Adler are both there he, he explains a few things of, of like of how the order works and so they know that basically their next attack is going to be on Parliament that's where Blackwood's going to try and make his next attempt so he's basically arrested uh, while Watson and Adler run away uh, he gives them instructions and this, this whole arrest is faked basically you find out later on again it's one of those things that's done in flashback so Lestrange comes up Lestrade. So Lestrange from Harry Potter. Uh, so Lestrade comes up to arrest him and they he takes him straight to Coward. Yeah, I mean, Holmes' aim is to find out exactly what Coward's doing and where the attack's going to be and exactly what's going to happen, uh, which he does. Just baits him into it and then... Baits uh, him into villain monologuing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, escapes through the window where Watson and Adler are waiting with a boat. So the boat takes them underneath Parliament. There is a big device there where basically they're going to disperse this gas. Uh, Blackwood's plan is to use this device via remote control. He's got a like a radio transmitter, so that the implication is that he's basically, or Reardon, I assume, has basically invented radio wave control, yeah. which, uh, which seems bizarre later on. So much not explained. But anyway, he's his plan is to use this uh, to pretend he's doing something supernatural. He's actually going to release cyanide gas through the vents in Parliament. Uh, all the windows will be closed and the doors are locked by his followers. His followers have all been given the antidote and he's basically going to supernaturally kill everyone who isn't a part of his uh, his secret order. They head into the basement and there's a fight down here, again with uh, the giant Frenchman and a couple of other just cronies. So at this point in the fight, they're also trying to stop the device right 
before it hits midday because of course you have to wait until an exact time to give everyone ample opportunity to solve your evil plot and what happens is that while they're all off fighting Irene Adler takes one of the cylinders uh, runs off with it they manage to win the fight Holmes goes off chasing after Adler while Watson holds down the giant Frenchman who's kind of been knocked into unconsciousness almost yeah. Irene Adler's route takes her to the top of uh, the Tower Bridge, which is still under construction. Blackwood follows them up. They have a physical fight, and effectively, uh, Blackwood is trapped. Holmes manages to wrap his leg around a chain, which is attached to a steel girder, and as that falls off the bridge, he kind of is holding on to yeah. wooden planks, trying to keep himself up there, while Holmes takes his time explaining how he knows all of Blackwood's plans one by one. Yeah. And it's at this point where we get the very Holmesian explanation of the supernatural is actually just logical, so we don't really need to go into detail yeah. on every single one of the I planes. mean, it's all science in quotations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So basically everything that was happening in that laboratory uh, was actually the science behind all of the supernatural things that Blackwood's been doing. Yeah, and then he, he cuts the rope that's pulling Blackwood down. Blackwood then like climbs up and tries to attack him, and he pushes him or ends up falling and gets caught in ropes and hung. Right after he says, it's going to be a long time before I get hung. Yeah, hangs. <laughs> He's pushed Irene off the edge of the yeah, But bridge. she's fallen very conveniently uh, right onto the side of another platform that yeah. was down below. And she wakes up and they have a romantic moment and no kiss, which is good. Yeah. Because it would have been very unnecessary. <laughs> yeah. And Holmes basically handcuffs her and leaves her there to get picked up later on, I'm assuming. Because yeah. she is a criminal. Like, we've, we've not really pointed that out. That's basically the end. I mean, the rest of the, the plot here is just setting up the sequel that Moriarty is still around, uh, actually wanted part of that device, the radio yeah. wave uh, transmitter sort of bit. It's hard to, it's been hard to follow this one because normally we talk so much more about what's interlinked, but really the only link between the book and the film is that something supernatural, that something seems supernatural is explained by logic. Yeah. I think the other thing which is similar to the book in this is the like structural thing of a lot of the information is fed to you. What I really found in the story was that you wouldn't find out later that this person was related to this person because a lot of a lot of the book, a lot of the How the Basketball story relies on knowing who's related to who. In the, but in the book it would be like I am the heir to this person and my father was this guy who was the brother of this person and it's like oh okay so you're just gonna give me that information and not make me sort of look for it in the text. Um, I sort of mentioned James Bond earlier, but it's it's very similar to that in that kind of presents you with all the information so that when Sherlock makes his deductions, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I see how that all ties together. Uh, let's recommend. Yeah, look, I recommend them both. I recommend the book more highly than I recommend the film. I think the only thing really that's not yet been covered is how the novel really portrays John Watson as such a strong character that I feel like he drives the story so well. And hearing about from his perspective it's really easy as a reader to empathize with that so that definitely gives it a big thumbs up from me thumbs up for the movie and thumbs up for the book the books maybe a little dense to get into it was certainly a more difficult read just in the language used more than i thought it was going to be i thought it would just be i'd just take me a couple of hours to read but it was a lot slower going than i thought it would be movie i said thumbs up for the movie oh, okay it's maybe one of my favorite movies i love dumb action movies and guy ritchie provides so. <laughs> So I'm also going to give thumbs up uh, for both. I've never read anything from Arthur Conan Doyle before, never read a Sherlock story, even though I'd seen the movie prior. 
uh, I found it really entertaining. Like it was enjoyable. It's it's although it's dense, I wouldn't say it's difficult to read. It's just yeah. longer than you expect. And I think maybe I lost a little more interest than I had. So the outset where Holmes and Watson are together, I found very very enjoyable. Like when they're together, it was easy to read them when they weren't. But that didn't stop me from enjoying the story. And I think I'd, I'd be interested in going. To, I think especially in the short stories, I'd be very keen to go and hunt some of them down now. Uh, and the movie, you can probably gauge that I have expressed a positive opinion about it. It's yeah. uh, it's easy fun. It's not like traditional Arthur Conan Doyle movie. Like that, if you want to go find that, I mean, you can go hunt down the BBC series. You can probably go hunt down some of the tele movies because I'm sure there are hundreds of them that have been released over the years. The Brits love to do many, many versions of the same story over and over again. Uh, but if you want something that's accessible for kids, I think as well, uh, in spite of the you know, sort of the topic, then this is probably the Sherlock you want to go to. One of the good things about the Sherlock Holmes stories as well is um you can buy like every story in a anthology for like ten dollars if yeah. it's an ebook. So <laughs> there's really like no reason not to just buy the buy all of them and then just dip in when you want to. Yeah. Um. So let's talk about uh, things that we're reading that aren't Sherlock or watching. Uh, I mean, I guess I'll go first. Uh, I. I said last podcast that I wasn't going to talk about wrestling, but that's pretty much all I've been watching, believe it or not, since the last podcast. I've actually been going back and watching like some old tapes. This, this used to be one of my big hobbies as a kid. And I think at some point after I like, I, I wouldn't say grew out of it, but I just kind of maybe lost a little interest in it because it is a year round thing and never stops. It's like the longest running Raw, WWE Raw is the longest episodic TV show in history because they have one show a week, every week of the year, you know, like it's just nonstop. And so it is hard to follow. But at some point I think I became almost ashamed of it. It is like some people look on you when you watch, I watch wrestling and they're like, you know, wrestling's fake, right? I'm like, yes. And so that's why, uh, what I want to recommend you go and hunt down this week is a YouTube video called Wrestling Isn't Real. Uh, it's about probably about 20-25 minutes long, very entertaining, but it just kind of explains, uh, this guy explains very well why wrestling is enjoyable to watch and why it's fun and why you shouldn't have any like shame in watching it because obviously anyone who watches wrestling like long term is probably aware it's not real. But that's the end. I mean, look, there are young kids and stuff who, who follow it. And I'm sure there's probably one or two adults out there who might think that, but like it's pretty odd. The, the acting is so bad, you know. Like, but that's the charm. Like, and and this video wrestling isn't real follows the story of one wrestler uh, over his like 15 year career. He's still in the industry. His name's Triple H. Uh, but it's a very very entertaining watch, and I highly recommend that you go and hunt that down. Lois? I've been literally like just working, not doing anything apart from just working and then literally coming home and going straight to sleep because I'm just exhausted. So you'd like to recommend sleep? I would like to recommend not having a swimming carnival in week three of term one. <laughs> That's what I'd like to recommend. Uh, I want to recommend uh, a book that I was recommended to me. It's the first of a series called A Darker Shade of Magic. So there's a few books in the series. It's set, uh, our basic storyline is that... Is that P.E. Schwab? It sure is. Yeah. I've just read the first book of her other series. Vicious? Uh, Vicious. Yeah, I read Vicious. Vicious is really good. Yeah, I really I really enjoy her, the way she writes. Yeah. You know, our premise for this is that there are sort of different dimensions and London features in all of these different dimensions and they're all different colours. So there's the red London and the black London and the white London 
and the Grey London and our main character is able to teleport between the different Londons to do all sorts of different things. It's just a really interesting read. It's really nicely set up, you've got good likeable characters and it's not hard to read so you can really easily just pick it up and then before you know it a few hours have gone by and it's just nice and light-hearted. Before we move on, I did want to briefly talk about a bit of news just about something that's kind of book to movie related. I mean, obviously, uh, it's just been announced that uh, Philip Pullman, who wrote the Golden Compass uh, books, anyway, the that he's uh, just about to start writing a sequel series or a prequel series or something like that. I think he said it's neither a sequel nor a prequel, yeah. but I think people are like, no, we have those words for a reason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but just that that's uh, going to be something that's coming out and it's very intriguing because I know that's a very, A, the topic of the book series in itself is controversial for because church people don't like it and because the movie was so bad. <laughs> the movie was so bad. And I'm sure we'll probably do it one day. It's probably, I think it's definitely on our list. But uh, yeah, it's just that's something to keep an eye on. Yeah. That brings us pretty much to the end the podcast uh, next time we're going to be talking about a dystopian nightmare world not the one we currently live in uh, it's 1984 by George Orwell um, so um, so that's going to be interesting to talk about we're almost almost hitting one year of this podcast yeah. so that's going to be our 25th edition and then number 26 we're going to be bringing a year in review to you but that's coming up shortly but before that we've got to do 1984 uh, you can find and contact us at we read the book at gmail.com and on twitter at read the book pod and you can obviously subscribe to us on itunes uh would be really helpful if you could just give us a, a star rating and uh, leave a little review it just helps other people to learn about the podcast yeah please do that brings us to the end of this week's podcast uh, we'll see you again next time i've been home secretary adam heap i'm lois gladstone mitchell and i'm inspector janelle mott see you next time folks bye Who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the chicks? You're damn right. Uh, that's all for this week. We'll see you again next time in two weeks. Uh, I've been Adam Home Inspector. I'm Lois Gladstone oh, Mitchell. Wait. No, I, I doofed it up. I'm not Home Inspector. It's Home... Secretary. Home Secretary. Home Inspector. <laughs> <laughs> that just sounds weird. Sorry, I'll Hello, ladies. <laughs> I am your home inspector. Can you dig it? That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. We'll see you again next time. For now, I've been home officer Adam Heap. Home secretary. God damn it! <laughs>